0: Welcome to the Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast, hosted by the NextGen Advisors. Accelerate your success with insights from a multidisciplinary team of healthcare experts as they discuss an array of topics. These timely discussions can help you better navigate the challenges of running your ambulatory care practice. Here is your host. When we finished our conversation last time with Carl Coyle and Josh Rubin, we were talking about the New York State Medicaid 1115 waiver application. There's four sections of this and we got through two of them in our previous podcast. We're going to pick up there and move to the third priority of this waiver, which looks to help financially distressed hospitals and nursing homes and and also to address the work for shortage. Uh, We certainly saw that exacerbated as we were referencing before through the pandemic. Josh, take us through the first part of that element.
1: Yeah, the state is proposing to essentially create a value-based payment pool, um, and, and you might pick up the theme here, a value-based payment pool for those financially distressed uh, safety net and critical access hospitals and nursing homes, um, and those are defined as essentially hospitals and nursing homes that have a very high Medicaid population that, that a, a big portion of their payer mix um, comes from Medicaid. The idea here is to recognize that some of those facilities have really taken a beating as a result of the pandemic, and that there is work that needs to be done to stabilize those institutions. And I think in particular, if you think about rural hospitals in sort of the less sparsely populated parts of the state, it has been a financially incredibly difficult, in addition to all of the other challenges of COVID, it has been financially incredibly difficult for them. So the idea is to, enable them to move towards more of the value-based payment models, enable them to participate in things like the HEROES um, that enable them to be a part of the planning process and really integrate their their hospital into the service delivery system even better, develop some workforce training, um, and there is a second pool of money here, a substantial pool of money for training the workforce, and one of the changes the state made in the most recent submission is to acknowledge that the behavioral health workforce um, really needs to be a part of those workforce investments, um, which I know was... Uh, was something Carl was happy about. But ultimately, the idea here is to enable those hospitals to move towards positions of financial stability by enabling them to engage in value-based payments and giving them, I I think it's about a billion and a half dollars earmarked for that purpose um, in, in goal three of the waiver.
2: Graham, I'd like to jump in on Josh's comments about long-term care and a sub-issue that I'm sure the LTC community has raised with the state. But that is, we engaged with a long-term care provider here who expressed a significant portion of their population, about 32%, and it's a large provider system. About 32% of their patients had a mental health condition. And they got into the hospital because they had a chronic long-term disability. They weren't necessarily over the age of 65, but they had a housing issue, and the families couldn't take care of them. So previously, in the late 70s, when New York State addressed deinstitutionalization and started standing up community residences and supportive and intensive supportive beds, that development has stalled. So if you think about the delivery system as a three-legged stool, today we have two legs. We have the long-term care facility, and we have the ability to provide outpatient or inpatient behavioral health services, but we don't have an expanded third leg, which is to potentially pull those people out of those nursing homes, reduce the cost of care, and put them in a safe and um, uh, clinically appropriate residential setting. That's a need that I think that this waiver could potentially address, but that's going to be a significant amount of work.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the, the final element here uh, in terms of the state strategy is around advancing statewide digital health and telehealth infrastructure. During the pandemic, uh, telehealth was critical to many different provider organizations and their clients that they're serving um, to access and, and maintain continuity of care amongst other uh, issues in terms of financial sustainability. Talk a little bit, Carl, about what the state wants to do here around telehealth and expanding that maintaining that?
2: Well, if there are any silver linings to COVID, and there are several, uh, telehealth is certainly one of those that happened during the pandemic. And frankly, it kept the lights on and provided, more importantly, care continuity for the patients that many of the behavioral health providers were serving. There's a very high satisfaction rate with telehealth. The state has quoted surveys showing 86 to 97% satisfaction often higher than in-person visits, although we have some experience around that that might be contrarian to that thinking. I'll address that in a moment. So New York wants to build out on that success by expanding access to underserved areas, allowing telephonic-only services with payment parity equal to in-person visits, and promoting integration of telehealth with providers, EHRs, language access, care management programs, social services, et cetera. From a dollar perspective the state will use the waiver funds to create an equitable virtual care access fund and that is so critical to many of the rural and or underserved or communities within communities that have limited ability to access to care for example transportation barriers child care barriers etc so virtual care will purchase devices for providers and clients target interventions to populations with chronic conditions and especially and importantly bring specialty services to communities where they don't exist while extending virtual care to schools, day programs, settings like nursing home skilled facilities, et cetera. However, our experience is that we obtain more effective outcomes from in-person treatment in TELA. Adolescents excel in TELA. Being in 63 different school buildings, the the episodic drop by nature of counseling in the schools in-person is invaluable. We all know kids and adolescents embrace technology significantly, but we also find that that 10 to 15-minute touch in the classroom or the drop-by in the counselor's room is critical to maintaining the mental health of the adolescents and children that we serve in the schools. And and a a failure feature of the current reimbursement system is that we don't get paid for a 10 or 12-minute visit. It has to be a minimum of a certain amount of time. So this is something that needs to be recognized relative to the complexity In the comparative value of tele- versus in-person service. For adults, many patients do not have internet or computers, so it's great to have funding to buy that, but unless there's a robust internet connectivity, that's not going to be functional. Using a phone for tele- is going to be great, but that's not as simple as it sounds. I've heard stories of patients doing grocery shopping while they're doing their teletherapy and that's abbreviated as well. We don't get to finish the therapy session because they get interrupted with checkout or their kids are unruly in the the grocery store or whatever it is. I've also heard that uh, there's a great demand or compete for the one or two, the one phone in the house and sessions are often abbreviated due to the highly chaotic lives of our patients. It's not like a college student dialing into therapy from their apartment on a high-speed internet connection with a state-of-the-art computer. In my view, Tela is absolutely necessary. It needs to be part of the delivery system. However, our adult patients in particular are preferring face to face, and we're seeing a great many of them come back into the clinic with tele being an auxiliary and supportive component of the clinical delivery system. Mm-hmm. I think that that auxiliary
0: supportive component aspect is really important to highlight. It's giving options to individuals and to providers to recognize. We can't all just do a face-to-face visit. That isn't always going to fit in our schedule. Sometimes this is the most appropriate or for certain patients, as you're describing, this is going to be their preferred method to work with their provider and to get counseling or other services. So it's really giving some options here to both patients and providers to do that effectively and not get dinged on the reimbursement side for fulfilling the desires of those two bodies to come together and, uh, and get provide the care needed. So it would be a pretty significant expansion in virtual care here for the state.
2: Indeed. We recently purchased a new building at our organization to move our administration into to create more space for clinical delivery. One of our board members said, as I contemplated selling the building, because we weren't using it, we aren't back, we're virtual on the administrative side. One of the board members said, human beings are social animals. And I would hate to sell this building and find out in five years from now, that the social needs of togetherness are important, and we gave up the building and we couldn't come together. Mm. And I think that that illustrates the same notion of what happens with our patients. We're social beings, virtual does it for a while, but to be across the desk or near a person who is caring and supportive has a completely different qualitative feel than just virtual. Yeah,
0: it's a really good point. Um, Josh, let's talk a little bit in the time we have here um, about the timeline overall, from the state's proposal to Health and Human Services, and what's what's going to follow from here. And just a adjunct to that, what what probability do you put on this waiver being approved as it uh, stands today and as it was submitted?
1: Um, so the the waiver was submitted on the second of September, um, and there are statutory timelines that that kick off on that based on that date. The feds then have uh, essentially uh, 15 days to determine whether the application is complete. The federal government did, CMS did, determine New York's application is complete. And on September 19th, they then posted it for a second 30-day public comment period. There had been a state-level 30-day public comment period. Now we have kicked off a federal level 30-day comment period. That closes on October the 19th. What happens then is, is less rigid with respect to timeline, Um, then begins a negotiation between New York State's Department of Health and and CMS. And part of the problem that we have is that as we understand it, there are four states Mm -hmm. that got their waivers in before we did. So what happens on October 19th is we get in line. And and ultimately, those waivers that the feds have to complete negotiations with states about, as we understand it, are not little simple waivers. Um, They're big, complicated waivers like this one. So when... The waiver emerges from the other end of that sausage-making process is unknown. I think the percentage probability to answer your question that it does emerge from that sausage-making process is very high. We got a blue administration in Washington. We got a very prominent blue state here. Um, we have some political heft here in New York, with uh, you know our senior senator as the leader of the of the Senate. Um, and so I am very optimistic that this will emerge. Eventually, and that it will emerge with a substantial price tag attached to it. Um, to be frank, we have a betting pool here at the office. Yes, we are that kind of geeky at HMA, and and my money is on a nine one 23 start date. Um, you know, which makes me somewhat more pessimistic than most of my colleagues, but not radically so. Um, and my money is on a ten point nine billion dollar final price tag. Um, that makes me, frankly, more optimistic than most of my colleagues. Um, but let's be honest, I'm a New York partisan. Um, and so ultimately, that's where we are. The, the state still thinks they're going to be able to start something much sooner than September. I certainly hope they're right about that. I will be happy to lose the betting pool if this thing starts in April. I'll also be very surprised yeah. if this thing starts in April.
0: Okay, so time's going to tell on that aspect of it uh, once, as you say, the sausage making is complete here.
2: Carl? Josh, do you see the midterm elections as having an impact in the possibility of Schumer losing the Senate chair and impacting the waiver?
1: Yeah, I mean, if Schumer, if the if the Republicans take over the Senate, then he's no longer the majority leader. Um, He's the minority leader. He's still a very important person who the White House needs to advance their agenda. He has been a very effective ally of the Biden administration up until now. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, for New York, our political heft remains much better if the Senate stays blue. Um, but I do not think even if the Senate turns red, that it substantially changes the percentage probability of success of this waiver. Hmm.
0: Um, we're almost out of time here. So a final question to you, Carl. Uh, if this waiver is approved, as it's written, um, do you foresee the players at the regional level being able to achieve what the state is envisioning and putting forward in this amendment?
2: Graham, this proposal is a huge sea change. First question is, will CMS either fully or adequately fund this aggressive and comprehensive proposal? This could diminish elements of the plan or force New York to make certain certain concessions. So we have to see how that washes out relative to Josh's bet on how much money is going to come in from the proposal. There also needs to be a proof of concept with respect to the SDOH network formations. Many of those will be comprised of CBOs who are not well-versed in a systems approach nor have the organizational infrastructure that's necessary. While there's funding associated with building those systems, for too long many SDOH CBOs lived hand to mouth and they were really forced to subscribe to a poverty mentality versus an abundance mentality, fundraising, et cetera. Another challenge I see will be the risk sharing for all providers. Most NFP CBOs don't have the ability to share risk beyond level one and clearly the state's looking for greater risk sharing. So that remains an open question as we move through the process. As I mentioned previously, we're fortunate to have the RIOs and platforms like Unite Us as building blocks for systems integration. And the proposal takes us quantitatively and qualitatively beyond our present service delivery system with respect to interoperability and integration expectations. So that speaks positively to the systems and the providers and the players being able to have some success moving the integration dial further. The other good thing about this is, is that New York looked at the North Carolina successful waiver and incorporated common elements. They sought out successful initiatives such as Common Ground and incorporated centralized statewide data sharing, which is going to be absolutely critical. They listened to and included providers, trade organizations, suggestions, and most importantly, they addressed attribution by allowing attribution to go beyond just the primary care system. And in essence, this results in money following the individual. This is fundamental if we are to change the way people receive their services and providers get paid for them. Mm-hmm. It's, it, that
0: attribution element really is a significant shift here. And uh, it, it may not appear as being a particularly important element, but when you think about where the dollars flow and who then is able to provide and coordinate services on behalf of uh, their patients, it's really key to ensuring that uh, this provides a more accessible and uh, equitable approach in the future. With that, I really appreciate having you both with me today to help us understand this recent waiver amendment submission and its potential implications. Thank you to my guests, Carl Coyle, CEO of Liberty Resources, and Joshua Rubin, Principal with Health Management Associates, for joining me today. Until next time, this is Graham Brown with NextGen Healthcare. Thanks and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast, hosted by the NextGen Advisors never miss an episode by subscribing at nextgen.com slash podcast. To see a list of products and services tailored for ambulatory care practices, visit nextgen.com.